Peter Tong, and this is another episode of Peter, How Does the Government Work? I'm here with my friends, Carrie McKay and Dia Suwa Singh. Today, we're going to talk about language rights, section 16 and section 23 of the Charter. And I will say right off the top, this is going to be very much an overview of language rights in Canada. It's a very complex issue. And we don't want to do 17 podcast episodes on it, and we don't want people to lose focus. And we didn't get the guest host to uh, come in and be our resident expert. So we have Peter's research again. Exactly. So as we always say to our listeners, if something comes up in the podcast that you want to know more about, please ask. And we'll answer your questions either directly or we'll include them in another episode. So let's start by looking at Section 16 of the Charter. And Section 16 of the Charter says, English and French are the official languages of Canada and have equality of status and equal rights and privileges as to their use in all institutions of Parliament and the Government of Canada. And we talked in previous episodes about the scope of the federal government and the Parliament. and That basically says English and French are equal. And there's a provision number two that says the first officially bilingual province, New Brunswick, English and French have the same rights and privileges in the governmental institutions of New Brunswick. So at the provincial level in New Brunswick, English and French are equal. Seems very straightforward, doesn't it? Well, as we may know, for anybody that is interested in politics, there have been lots of challenges to this provision of the Charter, both in Quebec, the only province whose official language is French, and in Manitoba, who use both English and French because of the Métis heritage in Manitoba, which is Kerry's home province and the province where I'm currently sitting as well. So we'll get into that. But it's interesting how something that seems so straightforward can become so complex. I was really excited when I read kind of more of the Manitoba connections to the language rights portions of this too, because I think when when I think language rights, I obviously, I think first think of Quebec. And uh, so it was Nice to see that there was, you know, more connections kind of outside of Quebec and closer to home for me, but, you know, makes it more applicable to, I think, a lot of us across the country. And and maybe we'll start our conversation there, because as you say, I think many people, when they think about language rights, they immediately think about Quebec, but some of the first challenges around language rights long before the Charter came out of Manitoba, because when Manitoba came into Confederation, one of the agreements was that both English and French could be used in Manitoba. But what happened as around the Red River Valley was settled a lot with English-speaking settlers from Ontario, French started to be used less and less, and the provincial government kind of ignored 
French, certainly in their official documents and all of that. So although there was an agreement at Manitoba Joining Confederation, it was never really supported or used. So the French-speaking population of Manitoba was sort of trying to figure out a way to do this. And a, a brilliant fellow from Manitoba by the name of Georges Foray found a way in. He received a traffic ticket that was only in English. And the case ended up going all the way to the Supreme Court. Basically, what happened is now all of Manitoba's legislation and regulations and official materials have to be in both official languages because the Manitoba Act that brought Manitoba into Canada said it was supposed to be that way and they could no longer ignore it. So it was interesting that something as simple as a traffic ticket could be used to do that. And that when that actually happened, the Supreme Court case for Georges Foray was in 1979. So a long time after Manitoba joined Canada, but we, we actually, for people that went to law school, it's a case that we talk about a lot because it's like one of the lessons in it is don't miss your opportunity to to use the mechanism that you have. And that forced, uh, that forced Manitoba to become compliant in both English and French, which I, I think is really quite interesting. Yeah, that's super interesting. Yeah, and then there was reinforced by another case later on by a Franco-Manitoban lawyer whose name was Roger Bilido, and it was along the same things, again, reinforcing French language rights in Manitoba. They were now nicely entrenched, and there are certainly pockets in the province where, where French is a dominant language. Now, as you said, Carrie, we know much more. No, let me let me let me stop there because before I go too far down that path, I want to talk about section 23 of the charter because they very much overlap. We should sort of intermingle them and, and talk about them at the same time. So let me go back there. Section 23 of the charter said those who first language learned and is still understood is that of English or French linguistic minority population of the province in which they reside, or who have received their primary school education in Canada, English and French, and reside in a province where the language in which they received instructions is the language of the English or French linguistic minority population of the province, have the right to have their children receive primary and secondary education in that language in that province. So basically, and Manitoba is a very good example. If you learned and you live in Manitoba and you learned and, and understand French, although French is the minority language, you have the right to have your children educated in French and kind of the, the reverse in Quebec, I guess you could say, and we'll talk later on how that's being challenged or whatever. And it's quite, quite interesting because over the years, this has evolved and become quite expansive because the, the guarantee of the rights is the right provided in section 23 that is 
the right to the instruction in the language of the minority can be broken down into four components whose scope will vary in relation to the filing cell described, the right to instruction, to facilities, to the measure of management and control, and to the education of a quality comparable to that provided to the majority. And that's very important because it doesn't mean, okay, if you're in Manitoba and you want your children educated in French, we can send them halfway across the province to a French school and we met the charter requirement. I mean, that's not, uh, this makes it very clear that the minority language has to be readily available and to a quality of the majority language. It isn't just a, we'll, we'll fluff off and sort of educate your, your kids in the other language. It has to be largely equivalent. That's very, very important because as we know, governments often try to meet minimum requirements and uh, they made it very clear that the the minimum required here is the equivalency to the other language. So that that's uh, that's very strong language. And even in section 16 of the charter, the court cases related say that the language rights set out in section 16 are the floor, not the ceiling. I mean, you can provide more language rights and more access, what we're requiring under 16 of the charter is not, not the maximum, but the minimum, the bare minimum. And even that, as we shall see, has caused lots of challenges, largely in Quebec, because Quebec is the only officially French-only language province, and that started with Bill 101. And Bill 101 was the bill in Quebec in around 1977 that said the official language of Quebec is French. All government business will be conducted in French. All education will be done in French. All signage will be French, and so on and so on. It was pretty, pretty broad provisions. And to no surprise, the Anglophone community in Quebec said, this goes too far, and they created a court case that's now known as Blakey et al., and that went to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court basically said that things like government legislation and all its related documents like the regulation, can't be unilingual. You have English speakers in the province, and you can't not provide them with basic government services like health and that kind of thing in only one language, and you can't produce all of your official documents and laws in only one language when you have have two official languages uh, happening in your province. So that was a that was a challenge to the French language laws in Quebec. Having said that, it's 
still, for anyone that spends any time in Quebec, French very much is the the official language, and you see all of the signage and all of the street signs and anything you would see in public in in French. So while while Blakey sort of helped expand uh, the the official stuff, sort of day to day life in in many quarters in in Quebec functions in French. So that's, as I say, you start with the provision, sort of a two-line provision of section 16, and it seems really simple, but it's probably been some of our largest Supreme Court cases in the last 40 years have been around around language rights. And you can you can understand why, because as, as a some of the material that I read from Canadian uh, Museum of Human Rights. Our language is how we interact with society, right? And you want you want to be able to do that in the official language that is yours. There's also movements in the north, like some of the northern territories have co-official languages, where not only do they produce their materials and conduct business in English and French, they also do it in some of the nor- northern languages. Escape me which which one it is right now, but we'll have to look that up again. And that's interesting, but only English and French at this point are official languages in the country. It'd be interesting to see if that changes over time. Yeah, I think especially too, when you start thinking of, of regions that have like large populations of people who speak languages that are not French and English, and do they yeah. ever get recognized, even though they are still going likely be a minority language in that province do they ever get recognized official language status in that province yeah that's a whole different pandora's box oh yeah the number like the number of languages or even you know whether it's municipalities or you know sort of like provincially things and how many languages like you're producing all your materials in or you want to produce them in and like i know that there's even things in Ontario where there's like whole kind of battle royales about that, you know, way beyond French and English in terms of sort of meeting your population where they're at versus what is like try and true or what is legitimately, you know, official languages, things of that nature. One of the things that I find interesting about that is the languages in the North were used long before English and French. Right. right? Oh, absolutely. <laughs> but 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 they're not official languages and not officially supported by the federal government. So if I was a lawyer arguing a language case and I'm not, I'm going to say that Inuit, you know, existed long before English and French did in in the territories. So why aren't they official languages? Yes, yeah. some of the yeah. language right not part of some of the truth and reconciliation stuff is not. Is there not language part of that in some something? Sorry, I'm clearly oh, clearly need to go that. to research that because uh, I don't remember. No, I I think that's a perfectly legitimate question. I mean, without sort of speculating, I can say this: that we're we're about to talk about a new bill in Quebec called Bill ninety six which further sort of insists on the use of French in the province, and I'll talk about those provisions in a moment, but one of the largest groups 
protesting Bill 96 is not just the Anglophone community, but it's it's the Indigenous community because they're afraid that Indigenous languages are going to disappear in the province of Quebec as the, as the restrictions become tighter. So the, so that's interesting. I think we're going to see that you know in in provinces like Quebec and Ontario and Manitoba where there's a large Indigenous population, or or in the territories where of course, it's the same situation, right? So I, I think that's to come. And ironically, as Bill 96 has been put forward in Quebec, I'm not sure that the legislature bringing it forward thought of that implication, but they're, they're, they're opening up another very, very interesting set of issues, I think. And so I want, I want to talk a little bit now about Bill 96, because I've referenced it a couple of times and haven't said what's in it, but it's basically an expansion of the what I'm going to call restrictions on English, and maybe that's a bit unfair, that exist in Bill 101. And so some of the things that, that Bill 96 says is that if immigrants come to the province of Quebec, they're given six months to learn French. And so they'll only be provided services in English for six months. Once they've been there, they're expected to accept uh, services in French. Peter, can I interject with, was there not just a, oh, damn, why don't I know smart things when we record? Was there not just like MPs that were like complaining that they could not learn French in six months? Oh, no, it's the Air Canada CEO who was complaining that he cannot learn French in six months. So I'm just curious how um, like the average Joe that didn't take uh, grade three French or grade two French is or take French from grade two is um, managing that. Just putting that out. Just putting that out there and totally throwing you off track. You're not throwing me off track at all because I think I think it's a very important point. I mean, someone can probably learn a a basic level of French in six months, but we're talking about things like medical services and legal services and whatever. And it, it took me three years of law school to understand the law in my native language, let alone trying to to deal in Quebec with, you know, legal documents about, you know, buying a house or purchasing a business or any of that. And I can tell you that although I spent a year in federal government French language school and I speak a very basic level of French, I don't have the vocabulary to go into a doctor's office and talk about a complex medical issue in French. Well, and so I just Googled this because I was curious, like, how long does it generally take people to learn a language? It says, if you choose to learn a language through structured lessons, the minimum amount of time it will take you for the easiest rated languages on the FSI scale, which is the Foreign Services Institute scale, is 600 hours over the course of six months. And the hardest rated languages will take almost two years and 220,000 hours to master. Exactly. And, it, and the exa- other, yeah, I'm just echoing that exactly. The other piece that, that goes with that is that 
six months if you're a good language learner and they've sent you off to foreign language school and that's all you're doing. In this case, we're talking about new immigrants that are dealing with, you know, being in a strange country in the same place and trying to find jobs. Yeah, this isn't their only priority. Feed their kids and house themselves and, you know, all, all of that. There's, there's definitely going to be a challenge there, I would, I would expect. There's a provision that says that services in English will be restricted to those who are eligible to attend English schools in the province. And we'll see in a minute that that definition is narrowing or those who attended English school in Canada outside of Quebec. So if you're what they refer to as a historic Anglophone, you can get some services in English. But I'm really curious about how many hoops you have to jump through to prove that you're a historic Anglophone. I was going to say, yeah, how do you prove it? And how much work yeah. does it take to prove it? Like you get like a plastic card for your wallet. You know, I'm a, I'm a certified Anglophone and, and you need to provide me service in English. Like, yeah. How does that? <laughs> I feel like people would throw fruit at you with, well, exactly. like, if you wore that. Like you would, you would not survive in places like east of Montreal. Like, uh, yeah. Like, or north or in the north. Like you would be, mm, you would be hard pressed. Spoken as somebody who had to have a friend order fries for me at McDonald's in Quebec City once. Yeah, here's an interesting one. To no surprise, there is actually a government minister of the French language in the cabinet. But what's interesting here is Bill 96 would give the minister powers to withhold grants and subsidies to municipalities and other agencies if they are suspected of not complying with Bill 96. So if in, say, let's say Westmount in the English Quarter of Montreal, they're suspected of providing too many English services, the French language minister could withhold grants and funding. Wow. Like you have to give them props for conviction. Like if you're going to hold someone's feet to the fire, that's one way to do it. Yeah. Another change. And again, it was challenges the bill 101 meant that, you know, legal documents and things had to be provided in both English and French. A new provision and the law of contracts under Bill 96 says if there's two versions of a contract, one in English and one in French, the version in French takes precedence, which shouldn't matter if it's done perfectly. But as we know, that was actually a note that I wrote down as we were talking was, so if there's a disagreement about the interpretation of the charter, which um, I mean, shocking, we know there is very frequently disagreements about how the charter is interpreted in law. Is there anything saying whether the French or English version is like supersedes one or the other, or is it is it up to that court at that time? Like, how does that work in terms of the charter? I'm not 100% certain of this, but I think as it stands now, you can make the argument about which version should have precedence. And I, I think now if I was an English businessman and I was going to court over a contract, I would be arguing that that I should be able to rely on the English version of the contract. Right. If, if Bill 96 passes and with, without challenge, it would mean that even if you're an Anglophone businessman, the French version of your contract takes precedence. 
Right. Yeah, I know for sure. So, but like, what about in the context of the, the whole like chart of rights and freedoms, right? Like if you're in, if you're arguing that and there's a difference in understanding between the two, which again, there shouldn't be, but you know, not in a perfect oh, world. Oh, away, away from Bill 96, the charter would say they're both, they're both equal. So you you would argue, I guess, which one is favorable to you. Right. That, and that was that was what I was wondering. Yeah. So okay. The other thing that I find interesting is that there's a there's a provision about access to CJEP. And for those that don't know, CJEP is sort of a preparatory college in Quebec that happens sort of after high school and before university. And uh, currently there are uh, English language CGEPs and French language CGEP schools under Bill 96, English language CGEPs would be capped to 17.5% of the total CGEP population. So um, I, I don't know I, what the what the current mix is at CGEPs now and why they came up with the 17.5%. You read my mind because uh, that was my next question was why that percentage? But but if if I guess you're in the 19th percent of English speaking folks who want to go to CGEP, under this provision, you would not be able to if 17.5% of other people got there first. Right. And that's what I was just thinking when you when you said that was so that doesn't necessarily guarantee that somebody can access English uh, instruction of their choice. They can they can certainly get into the French portion if they want to, but not necessarily the English yeah, subset exactly. of that. Huh. And and sort of sort of another interesting provision is that so because in Quebec there there are there are a number of municipalities that consider themselves to be bilingual. This would no longer be allowed unless at least 50% of the population of that municipality are English speakers. Hmm. And again, it would be interesting how one would determine that and how often that would be checked. If, if, if you're right on the 50% line in your municipality and three families move out to go to Ontario, <laughs> Right. Do you do you lose your your bilingual municipality status? Yeah. I mean, I don't. I, I think there's all kinds of issues about ar around any of these language cases about um, determination and monitoring and all that sort of stuff. Which is which is why uh, the Quebec provincial government has a whole ministry that does all of that stuff that monitors businesses and whatever. In, in another piece that I was reading, there's there's also a, a copyright provision in Bill 96 that says you can't copyright anything that's English. And it's interesting because one of the ways that large corporations in Quebec got around the language laws is rather than putting the English name of the company up on their building, they would just put up their company logo. Oh. And, and everybody knew the big ass was Superstore or whatever, but it didn't say Superstore. They're trying to find ways to not allow them to do that. That what's displayed to demonstrate a company has to be demonstrably French. 
Bill 96 is a little bit of, of 2021-22 is a little bit like, like Bill 101 from 1977 on steroids. And it's just, it's another a nationalist provincial government sort of trying to move forward the, the French language agenda. And it'll be interesting to see. I'm sure there will be, be challenges to it, but there may also be some differences between 1977 and 2022, because in those, you know, almost 50 intervening years, there's actually a lot fewer Anglophones in Quebec than there was in 1977 because a lot of folks left. Right. right? When, when, when Bill 101 came in, a lot of people scattered to, to either Ontario or, or New Brunswick. I'm, I'm not saying there aren't Anglophones in Quebec. And it'll be interesting to see whether the challenges are led by Anglophones in Quebec were by indigenous people in Quebec because they're really afraid of all their indigenous languages being lost. And this is this is one way to push back. So it'll be interesting to see. And that'll also, as you as we talked about a little bit earlier, come into the whole uh, you know, reconciliation debate and all those kinds of things, right? So, yeah, because I mean there's lots of concern even, you know, in in other provinces where there's not as stringent application of of language laws of indigenous languages being lost right so i mean i can only yeah. imagine how much more difficult that is in the presence of language laws such as existing in quebec right like that yeah. um wow yeah so um it, it'll be interesting there's cert- we're, we're we're certainly moving towards another another set of supreme court language cases but it will be fun to follow Fun, fun for lawyerly types, at least, to follow how the challenges have have evolved and changed between 1977 and 20. By that time, it'll be probably 2023, right? Yeah. Because I, I, I think it will be different. But it, it, it will certainly be there because, of course, people want to protect their mother tongue. Their, well, I prefer to call it their home language. It's known as a, mother tongue and um, it'll be interesting to see i think it was about the material that i read from the human rights museum was a very good point i mean our language is how we how we interact with society yeah right so that's why it's language for many people is as much their identity as it is you know you know whatever our other characteristics are yep you know because that's 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 their their link to society. Now, it's in in my own experience, it's interesting because um, in Quebec, Quebec culture, whether it's for political reasons or whatever, has really become defined by language and by the French language. My colleagues that I work with that are from France don't see that at all. They say, you know, French culture is French culture, and it's about you know. Food, food and music and interactions and whatever, and we could do that in any language, and it's still French culture, right? But in Quebec, it's become very, very focused around the language is the culture, <laughs> and and I mean we could we could talk about that for a very long time, but it's a in in my even my small circle of friends and acquaintances, it's it's a, it's a marked difference because every time I talk to that about a colleague from France, they just 
they just kind of go, no, the language is not our culture. Our culture is something completely different, and we happen to speak French. A croissant in some other language is still going to be right. a beautiful thing. <laughs> No, no matter how poorly you pronounce it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and the, the example the example that was, was given to me, because in the official languages department in, in the province of Quebec, there's a French French word for for everything. And my, one of one of my friends from Marseille said, Well, in France we call a bulldozer a bulldozer. Right. It was invented. It was invented in the United States, and bulldozer is a perfectly fine word. We didn't need a French word. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We, we know what it is. Yep. And, you know, and I and I and I don't want to say that the approach in Quebec is wrong. That's up to Quebec. I'm not, I'm not a francophone. I'm not a Quebecois. That's what they've chosen to do, and that's good. I just I'm just noting the differences. I don't want to. I don't want to say that they shouldn't be doing that. Those are the choices that have been made, and so be it. And 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 you know the population of Quebec can can approach that as, as they wish. So you know, please please don't call her right. That's not what I'm saying. I'm just saying it's different. <laughs> and I find I find that interesting. It's how how do we define our culture? Yeah, for sure. And, and again, coming from a, I'm originally from New Brunswick, with a bilingual province. Is I don't really, although there there is a bit of a divide between the north and south of the province. The south of the province is is very anglophone, and there's lots of people that fly the Union Jack more than they fly the Canadian flag. There's those kinds of connections to England, and in and in, in sort of the nor- more northern part of the province. It's very French speaking, but I personally wouldn't define my New Brunswick culture about about language. Maybe it's because I'm from the majority language. I'm not sure, but my New Brunswick culture is about gatherings and food and natural resources and all the you know we all like to hunt and fish and eat seafood and drink beer and do all that stuff. But that to me is New Brunswick culture not not hoisting the the union jack because i have a link to to england yeah and it's interesting too because like and we've touched on this a little bit but you know uh in addition to quebec new brunswick is also specifically mentioned in the charter in terms of the official language provisions as well which is interesting you know possibly um you know i think possibly mentioned outright uh i i don't is quebec mentioned specifically in the charter? No, no, yeah. No, and the and really the only reason that New Brunswick is mentioned is officially is they had two official languages, French and English, before the charter existed. Right. Right. So I think I think the drafters of the charter said we better address this and say that that's totally valid and they're allowed to do that, and and we agree with them because we're doing it at the federal level and they're mm-hmm. going to do it at the provincial level. And uh, it's interesting that we haven't seen that I'm aware of, a lot of sort of charter challenges come out of New Brunswick. I mean, everybody seems to sort of get along or something. I'm not sure. I mean, I'm sure there there's some, and there's probably challenges about educating your children in France and in New Brunswick. I'm sure there are, but it doesn't seem to have made its way to the Supreme Court. Yeah, well, I mean, I guess maybe, though, if those services are just simply available by way of the 
decisions of that province in the past, if those services are are generally available, it's going to come up a lot less as uh, as a potential yeah. language rights issue, right? If they're just kind of built into how that society functions, right? I mean, because I was just looking out of curiosity for, um, you know, say you lived in Manitoba and you wanted your child to receive education in French, I would just pulled up a list of French immersion schools to see, well, you know, how accessible actually is that? And it appears at least, you know, I'm sure there's pockets where it's difficult, but it appears that most of the, you know, most or a lot of rural schools have uh, French programs probably for this reason, right? Because they have the right to be enrolled in that program. So you have to make sure that service is available in all of those communities, or at least reasonably mm-hmm. proximal to get a kid to a, a French immersion school if they so choose. So and that that's great news and also very interesting to me because there's lots of pockets in rural Manitoba where they don't have hospitals. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yeah. Well exactly. And I didn't I didn't quite catch uh when I was doing my quick scroll through to see when you get further north, also what happens to instructional language, right? Is it yeah. um, you know, is it also still French and English or are there more programs involving indigenous languages at, at those schools. I didn't dive that deep, but it would be interesting yeah. to find out. Again, that that raise, that raises the whole discussion we have earlier is over time are we going to see requirements for provisions in, you know, in Manitoba and Pincree, for example. Mm-hmm. Right? Because there are certainly lots of first language Cree speakers in the province now. Most also speak English or French, but again, going back to I want to to live and work and function in my original language, you know, that's a very good example. I it's it's interesting because I I think I think one of the one of the larger challenges bill 96 is going to be the provisions on immigrants where listen you have six months and then we're providing you services in french only right Mm -hmm. because that's that's an impossible target i mean i'm sure they pulled up that statistic that you mentioned right and said we can say six months yeah because they said it can be done in six months but realistically it can't be particularly as i say if you're talking about you know, very complex or personal things like legal issues or or uh, or um, medical issues or things like that. As I say, I have I have a, I I speak a very basic level of French, but if I was being tried for a crime, I very much would not be would not want to be tried in French because. As as you may at least imagine, things like court cases turn on subtleties, right? <laughs> and if you're not strong in a language, it's not that you don't understand what's going on at a basic level. You 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 miss the subtlety between might have or must, right? Because <laughs> it's the same it's the same thing to you. So it's kind of that's how I see that anyway. It's all about like the like as Peter saying like that functional functioning nuance, right? But being able to I think coexist somewhere where you you have I guess I come back to that basic right, right? So yeah. or assumed basic right, depending on right. how you look at that. Yeah, and let's imagine it doesn't 
matter what province you're in, you're you're um, you're having a complex medical issue. So fine, maybe maybe the immigrant services in your community can provide someone to go with you to your doctor's appointment who will help you deal with the doctor and you know understand in your first language what's going on but then that means you have to share that all that information with your community yeah right we we all have the luxury that we don't have to do that yep if you can't communicate with with the medical professionals that you need then then your 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 privacy's lost. Yeah, for sure. And that's kind of what I got. That's as I say, as I was saying earlier, that's very much a skim over the top. But I think for language rights at a podcast level, that's what we can reasonably do. As we always say, if we've gotten something wrong or there's something you have questions about and you're listening, let us know. We'll find out more and we'll talk about it more. Absolutely. Okay. Well, I think that's it for this episode. So thanks everyone for joining us and we will see you next time for another section of the charter. Thanks everybody. Thanks for listening to Peter. How does the government work? You can reach us by email at howdoesthegovernment at gmail.com or on Twitter at howdoesgovtwork with questions or corrections. Or send us an audio message at speakpipe.com slash howdoesgovtwork as we get unconfused together. Music.